Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 52nd episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is just work, what to say when you don't know what to say. I'm joined by Kim Scott. She's the author of Just Work, Get Shit Done, Fast and Fair, and with her business partner, Trier Bryant who is the co-founder of Just Work. The publisher of the book is St. Martin's Press. Kim and Trier co-founded the company Just Work to help organizations and individuals create more equitable workplaces. Kim was a CEO coach at Dropbox, Qualtrics, Twitter, and other tech companies. She was a member of the faculty at Apple University. She's been at Google and numerous other interesting activities in her life. Trier has been a leader at Goldman Sachs, Twitter, Astra. She's probably served in the U.S. Air Force as a captain leading an engineering team. She founded Pathfinder, which is a diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting firm. Uh, Clients have included Equinox, uh, Airbnb, SoundCloud, eBay, and many others. Welcome to the show, Kim and Trier. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us, Dan. Oh, I'm delighted. Uh, a good cause is a cause that should be supported. So let's <laughs> let's jump right into the book itself. Just briefly, Kim, if you could give us an overview of what this book is about, what inspired this book. So the, there, a quick story about what inspired the book. I was giving a talk about Radical Candor, my previous book, at a tech company in San Francisco. And uh, if you write a book about feedback, you're going to get a lot of it. So here was some of the feedback <laughs> I got. So uh, the CEO of this company ha- had been a colleague for the better part of a decade and is one of too few black women CEOs in tech. And when I finished talking to her team about Radical Candor, she pulled me aside and she said to me, you know, I got to tell you, Kim, I love this idea. I think it's really going to help me build the kind of culture I want at this company. But it is much harder for me to put this into practice than it is for you, because as soon as I offer someone even the most compassionate candor, I get slimed with the angry black woman stereotype. And I knew this was true. And and what she told me made me have three revelations at the same time. First of all, I had failed to be the kind of upstander I thought of myself as. I had failed to, to, I had sort of been in denial about the things that were happening to her. She was, over the course of a decade, she was always cheerful and happy and kind and never seemed even the tiniest bit annoyed. And it never had once occurred to me what it must have cost her to show up that way, because believe me, in that period of time, she had what to be annoyed about. So that was the first revelation. I hadn't been an upstander. The second revelation was that, and this is hard for the author of Radical Candor to admit, but I had been in denial about the kinds of things 
that had happened to me in the course of my career as a woman in the workplace. And last of all, and this was probably hardest, I had failed as a leader to create the kinds of environments that would allow everyone on my teams to just work, to, 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 to work in an environment that was both fair, but also that, that was effective. And so, so that was really what prompted me to write the book. And, and the book is aimed at what are the things that we can do as, as leaders? What are the things that we can do as upstanders? What are the things that we can do as people who are harmed by workplace injustice? And what can we do to recognize it, to better recognize it when we are the people who cause harm? And that last part was maybe the hardest because I never wanted to see myself as a victim, but even less did I want to see myself as a, as a perpetrator. Well, one of the things I really liked about the book is you, you put yourself on the line. You, you reveal moments when you, know, you didn't realize what was happening and then you had to figure out how you're going to handle it. And sometimes you didn't think you handled it as well as you could have. So that, that confessional era, I think, gave the book a lot more intimacy and uh, a lot more emotional power. Uh, Trier, tell us about your path a little bit. How did you meet Kim, perhaps? What were your thoughts when the two of you decided to launch this company together? Uh, what are we talking about here? Yeah. So Kim gave me an early copy of the book and was looking for feedback. And, you know, we were talking about starting a company, which she wanted to do with that, the impact that she was looking to make. And I was like, yeah, 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 that's fine. I'll give you feedback on the book. But like, I'm, <laughs> I'm busy doing other things, like being a chief people officer in the middle of COVID. Like I couldn't even think about leaving my team or anything like that. But I read the book and, you know, Dan, it was incredibly powerful for me on a personal level. Um, it really forced me to sharpen my perspective on my own experiences that I had had. Um, you know, when we talk about the framework and the root causes of workplace injustices, bias, prejudice, bullying, simple definitions, bias, not meaning it, prejudice, meaning it, and then bullying, just being mean. The whole section on bullying was just mind blowing for me because if you would have asked me, Dan, Trey, have you ever been bullied in your career? I would say, no. Have you met me? Have you ever worked with me? Like you come for me, I'm going to come for you. Um, but I had just never defined it in that way. So I could, if I couldn't name it in that way, then I couldn't have responded in that way. And so I had to really reflect and say, wow, I have been bullied in my career, but I never stood up for myself. I never, you know, went to a leader or said, hey, like this shouldn't be happening because I, again, I, I couldn't tease apart these different injustices. Um, and then I really had to reflect on as a leader, right? One of the roles, we all have a role to play. The things that I didn't do as a leader to prevent these workplace injustices from occurring within the organization. And so as a DEI practitioner, we don't have enough simple frameworks that are practical and tactical to give leaders and organizations to make these changes. And so Kim, if you know, if you're familiar with radical candor and you know Kim's work, like Kim's gonna give you a two by two. And Kim was going to give you a framework and put it into work. And so that was just so powerful that I was like, Kim, you're really onto something. We do need to start this company and we need to get this into every organization and leader that we can. And so that's well, why we're here. Okay. Well, I'm glad you mentioned bowling. That's actually was the inspiration for a book I've just finished, Crowdsourcing, which is kind of a takeoff on Ambrose Bierce's Devil's Dictionary, but applied to the workplace. Because two guests in a row mentioned that about a quarter of all bosses are considered bullies. Not that they are occasionally bullying in their behavior, but that their fundamental behavior mode 
is to be a bully. So let's go back. This is really foundational. Um, you just mentioned some of these quickly, bias, prejudice, the difference between them, bullying. But you also mentioned overall in the book six different problems, Kim. Uh, those include also discrimination, verbal harassment, and physical violations. So why don't you just go back to those six problems to make sure we've got the framework here? Yeah. So, the, so to me, the as I reflected on my experiences in my career and on the experiences of others had had who I spoke with, and it's really important to think about how these how these different attitudes and behaviors manifest for all different kinds of people. So, bias is, as Trier said, not meaning it. Prejudice is meaning it. And bullying is being mean. So very, like, like there's a lot more to be said about these things, but distinguishing between them is really important. And then when you layer power on top of bias, prejudice, and bullying, you get discrimination, harassment, and physical violations. And I think one of the reasons why these problems have been so hard to address is that we often conflate them. We often respond to, to something someone says that's biased as though it were a physical violation. And it's not. I mean, it's sometimes bias can, the, the path from bias to violence is well-worn and, and, and we need to, to better recognize it. But we need to respond to bias as though it is bias. It's not, it's not necessarily the whole gamut. We need, to res we need to understand the things that we do to prevent discrimination have got to be different from the things that we do uh, to prevent bias, to prevent prejudice. So, so that's really what I'm trying to tease apart in the book are these different attitudes and behaviors, why they're different, and what we can do about each one, and also the connection between them. Okay, well, let's stay with what to do about each one. Maybe I'm going to go with bullying first and foremost. You say in the book that bullying has to incur real consequences, and I know that's one of your charges here, Trier, is to really say how are we going to implement and put into practice this need to transform our organizations. So what does bullying's real consequences need to be? What's the, the gamut of possibilities? What's effective yeah. to try to limit that? That's right. So consequences, leaders have to put consequences in place to stop that behavior and those attitudes in the workplace. Um, but there's three types of consequences that we talk about. We talk about conversational consequences, compensation consequences, and then career consequences. So when we're talking about conversational consequences, is how do you remove that platform so that the bully can no longer bully, right? So maybe in a meeting, the bully who is constantly talking in the meeting, talking over people, right? How do you disrupt that, interrupt that, and say, hey, like, Kim, what are your thoughts on the topic? And, you know, getting others' perspectives. Um, or, you know, Kim sometimes will say, wait, why am I talking in this meeting, right? Like calling, like like being conscious of that platform that you have and how people are leveraging that platform and if they're causing harm. The second is compensation consequences. And this happens so frequently that, you know, why are we paying the bully more? Why are we giving them more money and bonuses and base salary and more equity, right? Because behavior that's rewarded is repeated. And so we have to provide those consequences again so that they get that signal that this is not appropriate, it will not be tolerated, and we can stop that behavior. And then the final one is career consequences. And that can be um, you know, anywhere from 
not promoting the bully, right? Or we shouldn't be making them a people leader or a manager so that they have a team or a larger scope and role. But also career consequences could be exiting that person from the organization if we don't see that change behavior. And that is so incredibly important, but we know that that's also hard, especially in smaller organizations where you don't have the redundancy um, and the depth, right? You have a lot of times in the organization that quote unquote brilliant jerk, the one that has a lot of impact, gets a lot of work done. Maybe they're a single point of failure of your work where if they're missing, you can't get something done. But if they're also a bully, right? Like we have to make those hard decisions um, before you get to that point within your culture and company where they're really going to be detrimental to the culture. Sure. And the leaders are instrumental to what that culture is going to be. I'll confess, I started my dictionary with the term diversity in senior management, a short white guy. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's sometimes, unfortunately, about as far as it goes. What have you found is the aptitude of leaders to take this on? I mean, we I would like to think that, especially with the uh, Derek Chauvin verdict, we could enter a slightly better era than we've been in. But what is the willingness that you've found to to take this on? Either both of you to comment on that. You know, I think that I think that leaders are reluctant to take bullying on because. Uh, as Trier said, very often they feel dependent. They feel like they're, they have to have this bully on their team. Or sometimes I've seen leaders even, they, they hire someone who I call the paid asshole because they think, oh, if this other person acts like a jerk, then I don't have, and that, like, that's a terrible way to lead. So, so a couple of things, like one, one of the really important moments in my career came when even as the founder and CEO of the company, I was bullied. So I had this guy on my team uh, and he was not doing very good work and I was giving him some feedback. And as I always try to do in such a situation, I said, what could I do or stop doing that would help you improve this situation? And he kind of gets right in my face and he says, the problem here is you are the most aggressive woman I ever met. And I sort of took a step back and I thought, well, gosh, if, if I'm the most aggressive woman he ever met, I'm not even on the top 100 most aggressive men, especially in the industry that we're in, which was a very aggressive industry. And so, so his problem was really not with my aggression. His problem was with my gender, which in my case was not going to change. And so, so what I should have done in that moment uh, as the leader uh, well, first of all, let's talk about because in this in this moment, I was both the person harmed and I was the leader. So, as the person harmed, what I could have done is said, "You can't talk to me like that." I could have created uh, sort of a "you" statement, and I learned this actually from my daughter when she was getting bullied on the playground because I was sort of coaching her to say, "When you do this, it hurts my feelings. I feel sad." I, and what what I call an "I" statement. And yep. my, my daughter looked at me and she said, mom, he is trying to make me feel sad. Why would I tell him he succeeded? <laughs> I realized, that is from the mouth of babes, right? That's great. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so I think that's part of the reason why it's so important to distinguish between between bias and bullying. Because in, in, in the case of bias, you want an I statement, which, as Trier said, invites the person in. But in the case of bullying, you want a you statement, which pushes the person away and, uh, and makes them answer the question. So you're in sort of an active stance. You're not, you're not in a submissive stance. And so, so first of all, as the person harmed, that was how I could have responded. But also 
In addition to that, as the leader, it was my job to say not only that you cannot talk to the women in the org- in this organization that way, or there will be consequences. And because I didn't do that, it, his behavior, as Trier said, uh, which went unpunished, continued, and it even escalated. So fast forward a couple of weeks later. He's we're, we're at, it's at the end of a company all hands. He's sitting on a table. The garbage can is underneath the table, and a woman on the team walks up to him with an empty plate, you know, and a pizza crust on it, clearly needing to get at the garbage can. And she says, "I need to." And he finishes his, her sentence for her. He spreads his legs and he's like, "Get in between my legs." And so, so now it's gone from bad to worse, his, his kind of behavior, because I haven't created those consequences. And you don't think when you start a company, you don't think it's your job, you, you don't expect your job to be dealing with those kinds of comments. But it, it actually, if you want to create a, an environment that allows everybody to do their best work, it is actually your job. And I think people are reluctant. I was reluctant as a leader. I'll, here's an example of me failing as a leader. I was reluctant to take it on. It seems ridiculous. I remember that incident very strongly. It came back to me also just yesterday. I think it was in the New York Times. They showed uh, three Israeli men on the beach, and they were doing the man spread with yeah. their, their legs. And uh, <laughs> it was so unmistakable. And I thought back to people who compare that to what apes do. <laughs> <laughs> when they want to assert power um, anyway. So yeah. there's a couple of angles I really want to pursue there. One is, yes, you were in a unique situation where you're both the person harmed and the leader. And you mentioned uh, in the book that there are often situations where they got four different roles going on. There's the person causing the harm, person who's harmed. There's a upstander, which is your term, as opposed to an observer. And there's a leader. So Trier, how have you taken those roles and tried to educate or build that into the infrastructure of how organizations can can handle these moments better? Yeah, I think it's really about understanding that even in an hour-long meeting, a person can go from a person harmed to an upstander to a person who causes harm to a leader all in that one meeting, right? So when we talk about there's different roles to play, we're not talking about over the course of days or weeks or months, we're talking real time, um, you know, that we're very quickly in different situations playing all of these different roles. And so we need very specific tools and tactics to give folks in this, um, in these roles. So, you know, Kim mentioned um, for a person being harmed or an upstander, the uh, you statement for bullying. And so we talk about an I statement with bias. We talk about the it statement with prejudice and then a you statement with bullying. So an I statement with bias brings the person in, right? So if someone has bias and they say, oh, Kim, like, I didn't know that they let, you know, the company hire pretty girls here. You know, Kim could lead with an I statement and say, I don't think that I can work at a company where people are going to call me pretty girl and refer to me as a pretty girl and like respect me or I'm going to be able to do good work here, right? And that stops someone in their tracks to say, oh, okay, I didn't I didn't realize that how it made you feel and bringing them in, right, to you and how that situation um, impacts you. Versus prejudice, when someone is meaning that, when someone is meaning, um, you know, whatever belief that they have, you want to use an it statement to focus on the prejudice. So um, an example of that is I recall being at an organization that's known for hiring the best and brightest, yet there was a hiring manager who didn't move forward with an offer 
with a black woman who wore her natural hair out because she believed that that person could not be successful in the role in front of the business by wearing their natural hair out. So because she believed that if I would have brought her in with an I statement of how it made me feel, she would not have cared. But focusing on the prejudice and saying, hey, to the hiring manager, it is illegal not to hire someone because of their hair, which it is in the state of California uh, with the Crown Act and other states. Or, you know, it is against our code of conduct, which we, um, you know, have leaders go and sit down and write and edit with their teams um, a code of conduct so that, you know, you can have that line in the sand as far as what behaviors are expected from the individual. But using an it statement to focus on the prejudice and make that change versus the bullying um, with the you statement. So, those okay. are, yeah. Oh, I was just going to run with that code of conduct. That was a point I wanted to bring up. That seems something that you can definitely implement. Have you seen kind of best practices or some of the things that are really essential, you believe, in that code of conduct? Yeah, I think that, you know, look, it doesn't have to be called a, a code of conduct per se, but I think what's what's sure. important is that, you know, people can believe whatever they want to believe, but they cannot come into organizations and impose those beliefs on others, right? You can't just come in and say and do anything you want, but you can believe whatever you want. And so a code of conduct puts that line in the sand of what is expected from from the people that work there, right? It's something with some teeth in there um, to hold people accountable to. And so I think that you can construct that in a lot of different ways. Um, at one of my previous companies, we we kind of added on to our values. So we had six values, which I think values should be short, succinct. Everyone knows what they are. Not, none of our values is more than three words. But under each value, there was three we statements. And the we statements were our code of conduct of, you know, if the value is people first, then the we statements are we communicate in a respectful manner, right? That's, that's how we... Um, value our people. And so the we statements are really what put that line in the sand and the boundaries of what we expected from our employees of their behaviors and their actions and attitudes. Okay. And, and Kim, going back to those those four people that can find themselves in that situation, the leader and the person harmed and so forth, uh, you do in the book mention some very specific emotions, one that anger has a, has a role to play. Uh, but not just silent rage at times. You also said that disgust was not effective as feedback. I was curious why not. I'm not challenging it, but just for the sake of the listeners, if you can elucidate on on that comment as well. Uh, yeah, I, I think when when you're giving someone feedback on something they've said or done, it is really it, it's really useful to think of when. You want to you want to sort of continue to see that person as a human being at the same time that you challenge them directly, and when you feel disgust about that person, you're probably not going to be able to give them really really great feedback. So I think the thing to think about, no matter what your role is, is to be aware that a when you have power, you're more likely to bully others and you're more likely to put your biases or your prejudices into practice sometimes without even realizing it especially in the case of bias a lot of the bias a lot of the discrimination that i describe in the book is what i would almost call unconscious discrimination so starting to be more aware that this can happen that you're more likely to touch someone when you have some power you're more likely to approach someone physically in a way that they find problematic 
panic than you are if you don't have power. So A, being aware of that, but awareness is not enough. What you really need to do is you need to create checks and balances on your own power, especially if you're a CEO or a founder of a company. So I think that is really important. Uh, when you also, when you, when you're in the in-group, especially, well, when you're in the in-group period, you're more likely to bully people. So you may not feel like you have power, but, but I describe a, a scenario in the book where I was with a, a bunch of women recording a podcast in one man, and I really bullied him in a way that in retrospect, I felt, uh, I felt ashamed of. And so you want to make sure that you're, that you're aware of being inclusive, especially aware of being inclusive when you're in the in-group. And part of the reason, I think, why I bullied him with such abandon is that I had been bullied when I was the only woman in the group. And so now, you know, he was the only guy. It's, turnaround is not fair play. So I think it's important to, to recognize that. Sure. Well, I like to comment on disgust uh, because, yes, disgust means bad taste, bad smell. You can, you know, this in warfare, you know, we, we describe the enemy as if they're subhuman species, you know, rats we're going to exterminate or something like that. I also like to comment about anger because I think one of your points in the book was that rather than just consume yourself with grief and, and rage, but not articulate it, uh, anger does have some legitimate roles. It doesn't mean you go out and you become a psycho killer, but it does give you a chance to try to assert some, you know, domain over your existence and your path and to make progress and not just be, you know, subjected to something. And I really wanted to bring that up in part because we so often identify anger with something that men can do <laughs> and men do do and women can't and shouldn't and so forth. And there's a huge gender angle in this book, uh, including the fact that it said that, uh, what, 70% of guys are bullies or 70% of the bullies are guys, rather, let's put it that way. Let's talk about, let's take about the gender angle. It seems like it's, it's the elephant in the room. We just have to go there. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, one of the things that I found there, there is throughout my career is that I was not, I was not allowed to show, there was a very narrow range of emotions that it was acceptable for me to show. And as a white woman, frankly, I had my my band was was bigger than other people's bands. Like it was a little bit, it's probably been throughout my career a little bit safer, quote unquote, for me to show anger than it has been for Trier. I think you would agree with that, Trier. I don't know. We've never had this conversation before, actually. But it is it is really when you're not allowed to show anger. Uh, then then it is silencing. It's another way of silencing people. So I think sort of learning to learning to speak up when you and to pay attention to those emotions and rather than repressing them is one of the things I think there's a there's a default to silence in the in the face of things that happen uh, to us and I think if, if this book changes one thing I hope it changes that default to silence so that people do have an idea of you know what they can say should they choose to speak up well, a anger is a really important emotion. I I'm a facial coding expert, so I've spent my last 20 years studying people's emotions. And on average, for most people, anger is about 35% of their emoting, as is happiness. And that leaves you know, precious little. That leaves the other 30% for all of the other core emotions, uh, another five. So to take that off the playbook is really to disarm uh, in, in a serious way. It is. Um, I, I would just also say, Dan, that like as a black woman, I 
realize and like let's just be honest like I don't have the privilege to show anger uh at work in a professional setting in, in, in a lot of settings as a black woman in this country and um you know, I have had to figure out tactics of how to do that. Um, and I think even like, you know, Kim's example of the black woman CEO and, you know, one of the things that inspired her to write this, write this. So to hear you say that removing that emotion, um, and, and how it impacts, you know, how to move forward and how to engage, I'm reflecting on that. And it's just like, wow, like, yeah, I, I wish that I could, express those emotions. And even as I've gotten more senior and and, and and to the executive level, I have to be incredibly thoughtful to be direct and firm, but not ex- express anger. Yeah. No, one of the ways that, which, you know, there's large and small ways in which racism comes home and the toll that it, it uh, you know, costs us all as a society and individually. But one time it was someone I was on NPR and he just said, yes, as a black man, I decided I would learn Disney tunes from Disney movies because I could sing them softly if there was a, a woman in the vicinity on the street so that she would feel comfortable that I was part of the mainstream of the culture. It would be non-threatening. I went, wow, that you had to internalize and decide to consciously do that just to neutralize. It was just, it, it was a small moment, but it was so revealing. Um, let me switch to something else. I just have to baldly ask the question, is HR of any help in getting these things done? Uh, because it seems to me in a lot of cases, it's just paper pushing. Kim, I'm going to let you take this one first. Okay. As a, uh, as, a, as a chief people officer, I will let you go first. <laughs> okay. Yes, HR absolutely can and should be part of the solution, especially if you have HR people who are like Trier, uh, sort of HR for the people. I think the danger comes into play when HR has an agency problem. Sometimes a single HR person has to represent the interests of the company the interests of a particular leader at the company and the interests of the person who the leader has uh, has just harmed and and that can put hr representatives into uh, an impossible situation because the you know let's let's imagine a case in which uh, in which a leader groped an employee at a company so you want to make sure that the company doesn't get sued. So that would imply that you should investigate and hold this leader accountable. But as the HR person, you are perhaps also paid by that particular individual. Perhaps that individual decides whether or not you get fired and what your bonus is. Like now you're in a very tricky situation. And, uh, and also you want to make sure that this individual who has been groped is okay. And and I think part of the cynicism about HR comes from the fact that very often the person who was groped feels like they were last in line uh, in in terms of being being protected, having their interests being represented. So that's one problem, but HR HR can also be part of the solution. and, And Trier has a lot more to say about that. Yeah, I one I hate the term HR. Um, I, I prefer you know people team. Um, you know your your people strategy and look, just the way that like not everyone has a strong engineering team or a marketing team or a sales team. Not everyone is going to have a strong people team. But the difference is is that I encourage leaders to really think about how do you position your people team and your people leader. They are there 
to put your people first, to have a people-centric strategy. You have a revenue leader that's focused on sales. You've got an engineering leader that's focused on your product. You've got general counsel that's focused on your you know, legal um, appetite for legal and risk, right? Someone has to be focused on your employees, which I think is the biggest asset because no matter it is what a company needs to accomplish or do, your people are going to get it done. And so if you position your people team and your people leader to have to be people centric and you express that to your, um, to your talent, to your employees, it really builds that trust and rapport to know that there's someone actually advocating for them and looking out for them. And that is what I think distinguishes, um, you know, really strong people teams from others that, that work to get it right and make the effort to do better. Yeah, well, I asked the question for two very specific reasons. One is I remember being invited in by a company in Silicon Valley, a pretty major company, to speak, and it was at lunchtime deliberately so the executive team could join the discussion, kind of a town hall about company culture and inclusion. And somehow, suddenly, all of them had a schedule conflict, and none of them attended, even though there was a lot of employees there. And you could just see the look on the, the I'll call it the people team, uh, when they realized none of these leaders were going to show right. for, for the conversation. It was really a, a missed opportunity. The other one, I'll just confess, I was many years ago working for the Minnesota Orchestra, and my boss had previously been at the University of Minnesota. She obviously didn't like academics. I was showing up with a master's degree from an Ivy League school, and she just found the occasion, suddenly nothing less than a Christmas party to put me down in front of everybody else. And uh, the HR person I talked to, I came to realize, seemed very sympathetic, but actually it was all about, well, we hope you don't sue because there was a bunch of other stuff that had gone on as well. One last question before we conclude here. Um, I noticed, um, Kim, that you not only were from Memphis, but you also mentioned that your family belonged to the Christian Science Church, which is one of those maybe rarer cases where it was founded by a woman. And you have gone on to found companies. I have to think that somehow this Mary Baker Eddy angle is of some importance to the fact that you've been an advocate and a, and a strong woman leader. Yes, I think there, there were one of the stories I tell in the book is is of a of a prejudice that I had growing up, and the prejudice was quite frankly that women were superior to men. Uh, there, there's there's a passage in Mary Baker Eddy's writing which is that woman is the highest ideal of God, and men are the second highest. <laughs> and uh, there's debate about my interpretation of that passage, but anyway, that was my interpretation. That, that was my interpretation. <laughs> And, and I really believed it. And I believed it until, for some reason, the thing that made me stop and question my prejudiced belief was, uh, was reading a Wordsworth poem my senior year in high school. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me, oh, a man wrote this. They're, you know, maybe they're not such heartless, um, mindless folks after all. And it was a great relief to let go of that, uh, of that prejudiced belief because I, I knew that I would work with a lot of men. I didn't want to work with people who were inferior. And I knew I would probably one day marry a man and I didn't want to marry an, an inferior being. So I think there's enormous relief to letting go of those prejudiced beliefs. But at the same time, it was actually kind of helpful to me to counteract uh, the opposite prejudice that is much more prevalent in our uh, in our society to have those formative years uh, being reassured that that I, <laughs> that I was superior. 
Sure. No, no. I like the story a lot. It's very interesting. Um, so, Kim and Trier, I want to thank you so much for having been on the show today. This is episode number 52, Just Work, What to Say When You Don't Know What to Say. Uh, my guests have been Kim Scott. She's the author of Just Work, Get Shit Done, Fair and uh, Fair and Fast, and Trier Bryant, who is the CEO and co-founder of Just Work, along with Kim. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can check out other episodes by going to my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com or to the New Books Network. This is under the special series programming. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. In light of today's topic, there's a passage from a novel by Isabel Allende, the Chilean novelist called Zorro. And in the book, there's an exchange where someone says, do you truly believe that life is fair, senor? No, maestro, but I plan to do everything in my power to make it so. Until next time, be kind and stay safe.